This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also available on iTunes. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. Today we'll talk with Wendy Lesser about her forthcoming book, Why I Read, the Serious Pleasure Books. Then PW Reviews editor Alex Crowley will tell us about some of 2013's best science books. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. And as in previous weeks in December, it's slow. It's slow. Nobody wants to release a new book this late in the season. Sure. Yeah. Everything, everything big came out a week ago or is going to come out in early January. And there's some very interesting stuff coming up ahead. Uh, but in the meantime, there's only one new title in the top 25 for hardcover fiction, and that's Dean Kuntz's Innocence at number eight. PW's review of it says it's the most satisfying Kuntz standalone in a while. It pairs up two uh, very isolated people, one who is so ugly that his appearance causes the most terrible rage in other people, and the other is an 18-year-old goth girl uh, Mm. who thinks that her nemesis has murdered her father with poisoned honey. So uh, we say that this is an imaginative, mystical thriller. Kuntz has always uh, really touched on the supernatural. He and and Stephen King are just on either side of the line between thriller and horror, um, and it's interesting to see him playing with that line. And so that's at number eight on our fiction hardcover bestseller list. Wow. Well, uh, nonfiction, I, I have to say, not only is there no change in the top 25, or at least I should say no new books on the top 25, they're almost in the exact same order as they were last week. But there is one thing. There's, uh, we, we've, been talk, we, we've talked about and we've been seeing a lot on the list uh, a series of books on the, or by the Duck Dynasty, the, uh, right. the, the, the show. And this week there's been some controversy regarding one of the characters or one of the actors uh, uh, in the series. And um, uh, he came out with uh, some anti-gay slurs. And uh, it'd be interesting to see how that affects, or if it does, numbers on the uh, bestseller list in the coming weeks. Yeah, those books have been very consistently bestselling. Exactly, yeah. But I I don't think the people who are buying them are likely to go oh, well, you know, now that he's said some racist things and some homophobic things, we're going to stop buying his books. Do you think there's likely to be a boycott or something You know, like I think it's so popular that I don't know if it'd be a boycott or if people are like, oh, well, that's that's uh, completely different from this kind of, although they are um, uh, uh, a, a unique family and, and a rural part of, of the country, um, I, I think there, I think part of the, uh, the show is based on the familial aspect of it. So I wonder if that will affect anyone you know know, more and more people who knows all right well we'll definitely keep an eye out for that for next week and in the meantime nothing but crickets yes yes, exactly (laughs) it's nice and quiet i'm rose fox and i'm mark rotella and this is publishers weekly radio next up wendy lesser will tell us what makes reading so enjoyable for her we'll be right back
Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Wendy Lesser on the line. She's the author of Why I Read, The Serious Pleasure of Books. Wendy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So tell us about this concept of serious pleasure. Usually people think that something has to be one or the other. Yes, exactly. And uh, the idea came about because I was talking about the book to other people, and I stressed that my motive for reading is pleasure. And then one of the people I was talking to who had read a draft of the book said, but there's, there's also a sort of moral dimension to what you're saying about the pleasure you get out of books. And I thought, well, that's true. I'm not just saying anything that you like is fine with me and you can read as much garbage and fill up on candy and that'll all be great. I'm saying something else about the kind of pleasure reading gives you. And so that's how the word serious got in there. Um, it's not meant to be sort of disciplinary and school marmish. It's not meant to take away the idea of pleasure, but it is meant to say that some kind of element of thinking and feeling ethically and, you know, connecting with the world and all sorts of other things are included in that pleasure. And you mentioned a, a moral dimension. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, again, you know, morality and pleasure are often spoken of together, but not usually in the context of books. Right. Um, well, I guess I feel... Uh, not that books make you a better person. You know, I mean, everybody can show examples of uh, Nazis and so forth that were very high culture types, but but that there is a way that reading novels, for instance, and reading poetry in a different way can attune you to how other people operate. And it it expands your sense of the world into something that is more than just the narcissistic self um, twiddling its own fingers. And I think, you know, in terms of making you believe in the existence of other people and their reality and the fact that there are other lives in the world besides your own, almost nothing can compare with reading for that because there isn't even another person there and yet you're taking in another sensibility through the pages of the book. Now, what compelled you to write this book in the first place? Um, Hmm, good question. I I was working on a, a very difficult book for me, which was a book about Shostakovich and his string quartets, and I'm not a musician, and I was having to really stretch myself to say things that weren't necessarily very intelligent. You know, just to get to a very basic level, I had to work very hard. And I thought, the next book I do after that is, is going to be about literature, which is the thing I know a lot about and care a lot about. And I originally envisioned it as a sort of Young People's Guide to Literature, you know, like George Bernard Shaw's Young People's Guide to Socialism or whatever. But the more I got into writing the book and thinking about what I wanted to say, the more I felt that I was speaking not just to young people, but to everybody, to people my age, to people in between, to people who hadn't been born yet, to people who died 100 years ago, that I was not directing it at a single audience that needed to learn something, but that I was having a conversation with other people who either already did care about books or were likely to care about books. It was supposed to be a book that was a pleasure for me to write. That was part of the deal. <laughs> and was it? Yes, it was, because, um, because I just sort of wrote along, and if something came to mind, I put it in. Now, all the junk that didn't belong there came out in the second or third draft, but it, it was a book where I really got to draw on what I already knew, and then the rewriting of it was a huge pleasure because uh, 
I could just work on sentences and work on tone and not think about have I correctly defined, you know, a sonata form or something like that. Sure, sure. And well, speaking of, of the uh, the book you mentioned is Music for Silence Voices. This is Shostakovich yes. and his 15 quartets. Now, talking about the pleasure um, derived from reading, how is the pleasure you get from music different from the pleasure in literature? Or oh, is that, there a difference? I never even thought of asking myself that, but um, I think partly because... I'm not a musician. I mean, you know, I had violin lessons when I was a child, but that was it. And because I only go to music for pleasure and then to write about it and explain the pleasure to other people, it's a, it's a more instantaneous and less intellectual pleasure for me than reading. Mm. I mean, that, in a way, that's not true, because if I plunge myself into a novel, I'm not conscious of using my brain. I'm just trying to find out what happens next and making sure these characters turn out right or, you know, whatever. I'm, I'm totally immersed. So, in fact, I'm not consciously using my brain in reading a novel, but, but I'm capable of doing it. Whereas with music, I don't think I'm capable of it. I'm, I'm pretty much just taking it in on an emotional level. So you write about reading all kinds of things, not just books, but also plays, poems, and essays. What encourages you to read so widely? What do you get from it? Well, partly my work, you know, editing the Three Penny Review, I, I read a lot of poetry. It's not the kind of thing that I normally would have read on my own since I'm not a poet and since a lot of people in the world don't read poetry. But because I've been exposed to really good poetry through what comes into the magazine, that's caused me to think more about poetry and read more poetry. Theater, uh, I go to theater and I actually wrote a book about a director at one point about, you know, over 10 years ago, I followed around Stephen Daldry and wrote about what he did in the theater. Mm-hmm. So I'm really interested in what makes a play work and not work. And also, I'm always amazed when I see something that I've either watched 100 times on the stage or read and not seen at work, and then suddenly one director gets the idea and it's transformed on stage. So plays for that reason. Um, probably each different kind of literature that I write about in the book has a different reason for why I wrote about it. You know, they, although I'm reading them all in the same way, voraciously, they each have their own motive. Now, I've also often been a voracious reader, but I actually recently was suffering from reader's block where I would think about picking a book up and I just couldn't make myself do it. And also, I was recently talking with a friend of mine who's dyslexic and she loves to read, but it's slow for her. So I was wondering if you have any advice for how people who struggle with reading can find the enjoyment in it that you have. Well, of course, now there are books on tape, so people who have trouble with their eyes in any way, you know, having the book come in through the eyes, have an alternative. Um, I would say another alternative is to try an author who works very slowly on the sentence level. I mean, some examples are Samuel Beckett, J.M. Coetze. There are people who, if you just read uh, Emily Dickinson, if you read one sentence, or in the case of Emily Dickinson, eight lines, Mm -hmm. you get a huge amount. So the issue is not quantity there, and you don't have to feel as if you're speeding through. You you can get the pleasure of reading out of a very small segment. Um, But I think, frankly, I think one should honor one's blocks. You know, if you have reader's block at the moment, there's probably a reason. Like, you've read too much bad stuff recently, and you need to give it time to flush out of your system. And so maybe you should listen to music or something in the meantime. 
Well, I'm, I'm over it now, but uh, yeah, I, I definitely did need to give it its time to to work its way through the system. So yeah, and I, I mean, part of the point of the book is that people shouldn't feel obliged to read. That's a sort of leftover from English classes in high school, which make people resent books. And I, I mean, I actually say when I list the hundred books at the end that I'm recommending to read for pleasure, I'm saying if you don't like one of these, quit. There's no obligation to come to the end of a book. You are, you have not signed a contract that you're going to finish a book when you pick it up. So how do you go about picking something to read? Uh, I mean, do you uh, obviously you're you know from the uh, you know Three Penny Review, you you'll get right. a lot of stuff to read, a lot of uh, submissions, and and you'll you'll come across the great writers. But but when you pick up something, is it something that has been reviewed somewhere? Is it something that's been submitted to you? Is it something that you go into a bookstore and just take a look at the uh, jacket copy, or or dare I? Say Say the blurbs. Uh, all three of those and more. That is, I um, one way I do it is publishers send me things and I look at the jacket copy and I decide, oh well, this person who I respect says this is a good book, or I read the summary and I sit down with it. Another way is reading reviews, and I try and subscribe to a number of reviewing publications. So that, for instance, I subscribe to the TLS, which has a lot in it I am never going to read, but mm-hmm. I would say at least twice a year somebody reviews something in the TLS that I've never heard of, and it's a great lead. It might be a mystery writer I've never heard of, because they get some mystery writers in translation before we do over there in England. And, and, but sometimes it's a long dead, you know, Russian writer or whatever. And, and so I'll read a reference to somebody and I'll think, Hey, that sounds good. But sometimes it's just a person talking to me. Um, Within the last six months, Michael Ondacha, who is himself, you know, a writer really worth reading, was um, emailing to me about this Hungarian writer who I had never heard of, who wrote the Transylvanian Trilogy, and I'd never heard of that either. And Michael was in the midst of reading it, and so I went online and ordered my Transylvanian Trilogy and read the whole thing over the summer. So obviously this book is for readers, but do you think authors might be able to learn from it too? I was looking at the chapter titles when I see something that says like characters and plot. I think of that more as a writing manual chapter than as a, a reading manual chapter. Uh, no, I mean, uh, well, I'll, t- I'll tell you why I don't think it's a, it's a writing manual chapter, but uh, sure, authors can uh, enjoy this book because authors are readers too. But this, I don't think is, this is a book that will teach somebody how to write because... Um, when I'm talking about character and plot, I'm talking about why that matters to me as a reader. And the I in why I read is very important. In other words, I'm not attempting to speak for every reader in the world. I'm assuming there are certain overlaps and that people will recognize bits, but that they won't all read in exactly the same way. I don't, I mean, I've tried to teach writing occasionally in MFA programs and so forth. I don't think you can teach a writer to do a good character or construct a good plot. People either have that talent or they don't, or they cultivate it in themselves. You can criticize the way they do it. You can say this is this character is too flat, or she never would have done that. I don't think, and you can steer somebody in certain directions. But I don't think you can write a manual that shows somebody how to construct a good character. And I know you can't do it with plot because plot is a very particular talent, and a lot of excellent writers don't have it. You know, there are great books that don't have plot. Yeah, I was I was really interested to see your your opening discussion of why you put characters and plots together. Can you talk a little yeah, bit me about too. that? Mm-hmm. Um, I originally had them as two separate chapters, and and they were linked, uh, sort of joined at the waist. Um, 
with a transitional passage between them. And I, I even originally had in both those chapters the quotations from Henry James and Wilkie Collins that suggest that character and plot are linked. But I nonetheless kept them separate for, uh, I would say, about half the writing period of this book, through several drafts. And then a friend of mine who spanked in the acknowledgments, Thomas Wong, read the book, and he, and he told me he really liked this part, he really liked that part, and then he got lost in this part. And I suddenly realized that the parts that he liked were both character and plot, and they needed to be pulled forward into a single chapter. And the parts where he got lost were all about the relationship between the narrator and the reader or various other kinds of you and I, and they needed to be their own separate chapter, which was then called uh, The Space Between. So that's how it is now. And, and once character and plot got joined in that way in the, in the same chapter, I saw it made so much more sense that all along I had been intended to do that, but that I idiotically had not seen it until my friend, you know, criticized my order of laying things out. It's why it's always great to have readers of your drafts. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and what Henry James and Wilkie Collins say in different ways is that you cannot have a plot that's separate from character because character is acted out in plot, and you learn who people are by watching what they do, and you care about what people do because they are characters and you identify with them as other you know, men and women like yourself. So, so they both, in, in their very different ways, and they were quite different writers, I mean, Wilkie Collins was essentially a thriller writer and Henry James, the great psychological novelist, but they both thought that character and plot had to be joined. So speaking of Henry James, by two pages in, you've already given away the ending of Henry James's The Portrait of a Lady. And, mm-hmm. and I was wondering what your thoughts are on plot spoilers. I mean, that, obviously the book is 130 years old, so presumably anyone who really wanted to know how it ended has picked it up and read it by now. Um, but would you have been so quick to reveal the ending of a, a more recent book? Um, well, not if I were reviewing it for a newspaper or even a quarterly magazine. I probably would have hesitated to do And when I'm writing an introduction to a book, which I've done a few times, I always say, stop reading this now if you want to read the the book without hearing the ending, you know? I mean, I'm against giving away the plot under those circumstances. But I figured in a book like this, where I'm talking about, I think there are over a hundred works of literature mentioned in the first part of it, the whole book, and then there's an additional hundred listed at the end. Um, I can't talk about over 100 works of literature without giving away things. You know, I'm, I'm kind of picking and choosing among various topics, and some of the topics have to do with endings. And so I thought to myself, well, if somebody hasn't read the book and this sentence goes by them, it's actually not going to sink in that heavily. You know, they're gonna, by the time they get to picking up Portrait of a Lady, they're not going to remember what I said about the ending. I, so I forgave myself for the spoilers in that way, but I absolutely agree with you that it's not a nice thing to do in any kind of contemporary writing. And um, you say things like there are certain things that thrillers can do better than serious novels, and you also say that quality is not hierarchical. So why take such a firm stance against this divide between literary works and genre works? Uh, and do I take that firm a stance? Well, I, that was the impression that I got, but... Maybe I'm I thought I was, I, if I mentioned them in that way, it's because I was reacting against the kind of people that I thought do take that stance. That is, I, I was saying I'm including 
mysteries, and I'm including science fiction in this book because I think it's all literature. I do think, I do say in the science fiction chapter where I'm talking about Isaac Asimov, that even though I make a comparison between his plots and Henry James's plots, I'm not saying he's as good a writer as Henry James. But that's not because he's a science fiction writer. That's because only .0005% of the writers in the entire universe of the world in all its history were ever better than Henry James. Mm-hmm. And Isaac Asimov is not one of them, you know. But uh, I think I don't, I didn't mean to stress genre differences more than other people have. I meant, I meant no, to I be mean, inclusive. I felt that you took the stance against the idea of dividing the world into literary and genre. Exactly. Yeah. That was what I meant to do. Good. Mm-hmm. Yes. Good. Okay, I'm good. glad that came across. <laughs> <laughs> so then I, uh, but I just the was... hierarchies are meant to be... Uh, hierarchies of taste, of judgment, of I like this book, I don't like that one, and not the preset hierarchies of genre. That's, that's what I meant to say. Got it. And uh, one last question. You founded the Three Penny Review. How did that come about? Obviously, it was uh, something that had to do with uh, 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 the pleasure of reading. Well, probably did have to do with the pleasure of reading in some way. That is, I think I was already a literary person, sort of the same kind of literary person I am now when I was 27, which is how old I was when I founded Three Penny. But the more the proximate cause was that I was reading reviews in lots of other publications and thinking, well, I don't think these are that great, these reviews. I could do that that well. And so I started writing reviews myself in my early 20s for various publications. And then, uh, you know, the way an actor always wants to be a director. So after I'd been writing reviews for a while, I thought, well, I would like to edit something that has reviews. And I basically guest edited on a couple of other publications that were in the Bay Area, and I saw that it didn't seem that difficult, or at least the people I was guest editing with didn't seem to know that much more about it than I did, and I just thought, well, I'll give it a try. But, you know, 1980, the year that I founded the Three Penny Review, was also the year that uh, Chez Panisse Cafe opened upstairs, a different kind of eating, and it was the year that the Mark Morris Dance Company was founded. A lot of things that it, the world was filled with possibilities at that point. Sure. People thought you could do whatever you wanted to do. And in a way, I was suffering from that delusion when I founded the Three Penny Review. We've been talking I mean, with Wendy Lesser. You'll be able to find her book, Why I Read, in stores on January 7th. Wendy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Reviews editor Alex Crowley tells us about some books for the science fan in your life. So stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. Today, PW Reviews editor Alex Crowley is here to uh, share his picks for 2013's Best Science Books. Hey there, Alex. How you doing? It's nice to have you here, as always. So what have you got for us? You said that uh, you, you wanted to build on our best books list a little by talking specifically about science books. I have three that I felt were fantastic science books this year. We uh, had a, a history-heavy best books list, and I felt that uh, the science stuff, which I'm the editor for, I, I gave it short shrift, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were three in particular that I thought were really fantastic and like well-written, engaging, informative, and also uh, really important as far as the information involved. Um, so I'll start off with 
David Waltner Taves, I believe. I don't know exactly how to pronounce his last name, but The Origin of Feces, What Excrement Tells Us About Evolution, Ecology, and a Sustainable Society. Uh, that came out earlier in the year from ECW, Canadian Press, and uh, David is Canadian epidemiologist and veterinarian and he has a gift for titles it really is the best <laughs> title i think of the year so he wins that prize you know it's i think it's easy to take this book uh take a flippant attitude towards it because it's about excrement but uh, his whole intro is about our sort of lack of a relationship with this physical object that we make and all animals make and how it's missing from our ideas of what uh, an ecological life life cycle would be. Um, so he gets into a lot of uh, discussion, engaging discussion about, you know, from a sociological standpoint, from an epidemiological standpoint, and getting into the differences between environmental thinking and ecological thinking, which I hadn't uh, considered much of at all. You tend to think of them as being the same thing. Um, but so tell us a little bit more about that, about that distinction. Uh, the distinction comes from, and he, he, he goes over this quite a bit in the book, and it's maybe one of the more subtle but fascinating aspects of the book, is ecology is looking at something from the whole, the interactions of all the different parts, so that if you change one part, uh, one element of this system, it's going to change the relationships between all the other facets of that system. Um, it's not a way that we're used to thinking. Um, we're sort of trained in the modern world now in an industrial linear mode of thinking where uh, you have a sort of series of things. You change one thing and you figure out what, you know, what goes wrong with that one element compared to the rest. It's not all of them changing at the same time. It's just that one thing that you can make better or worse or substitute. That's actually where environmental thinking comes from. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, we see that everywhere. That, and as he says, um, I'm just going to quote from, from his book right here. And he, do, he does use uh, vulgar language for any sensitive listeners. But well, conveniently, we're, we're not actually on the radio. so Hey, we can say anything we want. We can say anything we like. Uh, so, quoting, um, At the core of this wicked mess of shit, food, and ecological sustainability is a challenge of theory. We have developed ad hoc solutions using a Henry Ford linear industrial model of nature. This theory works in a factory or in a laboratory, but wreaks havoc in the world outside those confines. And he's, what he's getting to when he says wicked problem is the idea of the, there's the, uh, the well-posed problem in science which you know has a, an answer that you can get to. And then there's a wicked problem. Um, and the wicked problems tend to be found more in the soft sciences, sociological thinking, psychological thinking, where, you know, like I said, if you mess with one element, it changes the interrelationships between all of those. Mm -hmm. And uh, what Waltner Taves says is that until we start thinking along those lines, we're not going to solve any of our problems because as soon as we solve one problem, it's going to open up a can of worms everywhere else. And so it's, you know, that game where you're smashing the, the moles or whatever yeah, it whack is. Yeah, whack-a-mole. Whack-a-mole. Mm -hmm. So it, it's the idea that, for example, if you treat someone for depression, then you might uncover um, some long-hidden history of... Uh, 
childhood abuse or something that you didn't even know was there because they thought their depression was about their problems with their boss or, right. or what have you. Yeah, it's gonna you, you're gonna find a, a whole lot more, but in finding out that one thing, you know, you have to prepare yourself for a bunch of new problems to surface, mm-hmm. and it's sort of a, the age-old problem of science, but it's what keeps it going. Indeed. Yeah. So that sounds like you know, not not just a factual history, but a real analysis of scientific thinking. It is, and is, and he, he introduces a whole lot of other great ideas in there. And it's so well written that you, it it's not doesn't feel breezy, but it's not any slog to get through, and it's funny, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I highly highly recommend it. Um, the next one I want to get to is sort of related, um, and it's from a former editor at. Uh, Nature, Journal Nature, uh, Henry G., uh, and it's called The Accidental Species, Misunderstandings of Human Evolution. Uh, This book came out of some weird controversies that spawned from his previous book in which creationists had, you know, selectively quoted to uh, support their own creationist arguments. And, of course being uh, an evolutionist <laughs> he, uh, he, he went back and was uh, you know, getting into arguments here and there and realized he had to go clarify a lot of these misconceptions that we have that a lot of them are, are sort of common accepted as common knowledge and he, he delineates for you know, non-specialists, non-biologists non-scientists, anything uh, in a way that is very easy to understand and helps you get to the core of what you know, Darwin's idea of natural selection really was. Um, And if I can quote from him real quick, um, Darwin used the word evolved to mean growth and development of a complex form from a simpler one, and used it to draw an an analogy with the altogether grander process in which life itself would from simple beginnings become more diverse, elaborate, and complex. Darwin had a term for this process to which evolution was a mere analogy. He called it descent with modification, a much less loaded term than evolution. Um, his, his main point is that we tend to think, and this speaks back to uh, uh, Waltner Tave's point about you know, linear thinking, is that evolution has no goal, it has no point, it's just a thing that is, it makes anything at all. Um, so we, instead of having this idea that it progresses in some sort of fashion leading to an endpoint, uh, that idea is completely wrong and totally misguided. And when we think about evolution in that way, um, it's very damaging and it's not actually what the idea is. Mm-hmm. That's how all. you get the descended from monkeys yeah. misconception. And he, he, he gets into that, that whole image, which is sort of embedded in everybody's you know, it's it's even in I think probably science textbooks here and there. Sure. Um, right. But the idea that there were many this is a, a rare time in hominin history, whereas we're the only hominin species that we know of. Uh, in previous ages, there were many that were living at the same time, and it you know so it demolishes the idea that there was such a thing as a missing link. Basically, every organism that has ever lived is a missing link in its own way. Um, but yeah, there's no there's no idea of progress. So, like humans aren't more special. We just have certain gifts, and we don't have certain gifts that other animals have. You know, we can't smell and remember things or know things the way that uh, dogs do or or whatnot. Um, we're sort of visual creatures, but, uh, 
in that way. Um, yeah, his his main point, he really wants to speak to this idea that evolution is is understandable and it it doesn't flow. It's a lot more complex and it doesn't flow in uh, in in one direction. Mm-hmm. And you have one more book for us. I have a third book, All and right. this one is a little... It's almost a year old, so I'm, I'm happy to get around to it now. It's called Bad Pharma, How Drug Companies Mislead Doctors and Harm Patients. And it's by uh, Ben Goldacre, who is a physician mm-hmm. in England, and he, a few years back, wrote a book called Bad Science. He had a column in, uh, I think, The Guardian, I believe. But this one, um, instead of taking on, you know, misuses of science in, in the popular mm-hmm. uh, mediums, um, he's getting specifically at the pharmaceutical industry and learning how we, we see pharmaceuticals as sort of panaceas in a lot of ways, but there's so much we don't know about them. And the reason we don't know about them and how they work is because so many of our regulatory systems are broken down, they favor the industry, um, and in ways that aren't even clear to the regulators because industries don't have, the pharmaceutical industries, the companies don't, aren't compelled to give all test data to regulators, to doctors. So doctors and patients can't make informed decisions about what they need to take for certain things because not all the information is out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and until we have a way of compelling industry to get all the information out there, we're going to be dealing with bad data, misleading data, a lot of marketing problems, mm-hmm. um, because it's designed it's for a commercial purpose, and it's not necessarily designed to uh, what we assume is something that's following like the Hippocratic Oath. Um, so he, at, towards the end of the book, he gets into the the idea of medicalization, and Rose, going back to what you said about you know depression. There's so much we know about depression now, and the ideas that we had for so long that it was based on serotonin levels. They there's, they don't have any convincing proof that that's the truth, but the marketing around that idea has gone on for so long now, uh, almost 40 years or something, that it seems like common knowledge. But really, that's it's just a marketing ploy to sell these whole uh, realm of medicines um, or quote unquote medicines. Um, we don't really know exactly how they work when they do work, mm-hmm. and a lot of them just don't work at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's a heavy book, um, but it's one that I think is a a really long overdue expose on the industry and really what doctors and patients can do to get more as much information as possible and also point to like regulators and say you know you have a lot of work to do on your end uh in you know regulating these industries that are out for commercial profit and they're not bound by any hippocratic oath or um need, you know patient need yeah i when when i was working as a medical writer and a medical journalist this is all common knowledge I mean, it was it was just understood all that all the doctors knew when they were prescribing antidepressants, for example, that they were tested on depressed patients who had no other mental illness, uh, which is a very strange, tiny little group of patients, because usually if you have one mental illness, you have another one. It's very common. So to have these only tested on mm-hmm. patients who are just depressed, because those are the patients who give the cleanest data, you just have this one problem and you're basically dialing it up or dialing it down. Uh, and it, it gives you a drug that is 
supposedly efficacious but you don't know how that works on someone who has depression and schizophrenia mm -hmm. or depression and ptsd um, which are the patients that the doctors are much more likely to see especially yeah especially now uh, the ptsd being a huge deal but uh, and he gets into whole you know trial outlays like why these trials are so poorly designed and why they're designed in ways that uh show the, the the data to be more beneficial to mm -hmm. you know their marketing purposes or whatnot and how the people that are working in or the people that we test these drugs on are totally not indicative of the populations that they would be used on and so we can't really extrapolate good information from them because it's just not the way the thing's going to work in the real world mm -hmm. well this sounds like a very important book and i actually also follow ben goldacre on twitter and he's fascinating there yeah. so if people feel like this book is is a little too much maybe then they can they can start with him yeah. at 140 characters at a time that sounds like a good idea all right well alex thank you so much it's always great to have you on the show yeah Thanks thank you alex thank Thanks. you for having me and uh, i hear you wrote a blog post that has some more quotes from these that's up on our pwxyz blog right now it's up on the blog now um I, I, I quote my selectively quote mind maybe hopefully in the uh, better manner than the creationist did to uh, Henry G <laughs> a few years ago. So if people want a little more information, they can check that out too. Please do. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 